Hello and welcome to Kill the Judge podcast episode 1.0.0. Today I'm going to talk about the toolbox killers who are respectively Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. And I just want to let you know that this is one of the most disturbing cases I've ever read about. I've read about quite a few. I first learned of this case from Mindhunter, which is a Netflix series. When I, you know, I, I learned about that about a month ago, and it has disturbed me up until today. Even today, I, I watched some footage about this that I hadn't seen before. I thought I'd got all the tears out of my system. You know, I, I still teared up listening to, to some of the people who were part of the jury and whatnot for this case. After I'm done talking about this, you'll understand why it affected me the way it did. So let's just talk about their biographies. Um, Lawrence Bittaker was born September 27th, 1940. He was born to parents that didn't want kids. They immediately put him up for adoption. You know, when he was born, he was adopted by the Bittakers. Mr. Bittaker was in the aviation industry, so the family moved around a lot. You know, even at a young age, Bittaker was already getting in trouble. Lawrence Bittaker, you know, he got in trouble for shoplifting when he was only 12 years old. And even over the next four years, he accumulated more of a criminal record. He was actually a bright guy. You know, he, he reportedly had an IQ of 138. But he dropped out of high school when he was 16 or 17 because he found it to be a tedious experience. Yeah, after that, after subsequent arrests, he uh, his adopted parents disowned him. He got his start. Roy Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado on February 5th, 1948. And I don't know why it's relevant or why it's even mentioned in the article, but it, or not article, but like Wikipedia page. But it says that he was uh, born, you know, conceived out of wedlock and that is, quote, parents had married to avoid the social stigma surrounding illegitimate birth at the time. So I don't know why that's relevant or why they include it, but whatever. So what you need to know about Norris is that despite allegedly, you know, he had both his parents, but it seems like they couldn't take care of him very well. So he was put into foster care quite a bit, lived with various foster families throughout the state of Colorado. Allegedly, the Hispanic, you know, he, he ended up with a Hispanic foster family and allegedly they Seems like they neglected him and didn't provide him sufficient food and clothing, and allegedly they even molested him. He attests, you know, that's why he, that's where he developed his hatred of Hispanics was because of that foster family. He ended up joining the Navy in 1965 and was deployed to Vietnam in 1969, but he didn't see any combat. He was honorably discharged from the Navy after one tour of duty. Okay, so... Now we're going to talk about some of their first offenses. Within days of his parole from the California Youth Authority, Bittaker was arrested for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. In August 1959, Bittaker was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment to be served at the Oklahoma State Reformatory. He was later transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri to serve the remainder of his sentence. In 1960, Bittaker was released from prison and soon reverted to crime. Within months of his release, he had been arrested in Los Angeles for robbery and in May of 1961, was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. While incarcerated for this robbery, he was diagnosed by a psychiatrist as being highly manipulative. The psychiatrist also described Bittaker as having, quote, considerable concealed hostility. Bittaker was released on parole in 1963 after completing two years of his sentence. So that's actually something important and worth noting is he was sentenced to 15 years but released after two. Both of these guys, a lot of times when they would get sentenced, they would get released way before 
you know, they never serve their full terms, or I think only one of them did, and that would be Norris, and we'll talk about that later. So in October 1964, Bitteker was again imprisoned for parole violation. In 1966, Bitteker underwent further examinations by two independent psychiatrists, both of whom classified him as borderline psychopath a highly manipulative individual unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Bitteker explained to one of them that his criminal activities gave him a feeling of self-importance. Although he insisted circumstantial matters pertaining to his environment and upbringing decreased his ability to resist committing crimes, Bitteker was prescribed antipsychotic medication. A year later, he was again released into society. A month after his parole in July of 1967, Bitteker was again arrested and convicted of theft and of leaving the scene of an accident. What it turned out to be is it was a hit and run. He was sentenced to five years but re was released in April of 1970. In March of 1971, Bitteker was again arrested for burglary. Due to repeated parole violations, he was sentenced to six months to 15 years imprisonment in October of 1971. Three years later, Bitteker was again released from prison. So again, another situation where he didn't serve anywhere close to his full sentence. In 1974, Bitteker was arrested for assault with attempt to commit murder after he stabbed a young supermarket employee who accused him of stealing. What I read about this is apparently he had gone into the supermarket and he got a steak and he stuffed it down his pants and tried to leave the store. And the employee followed him, you know, he was a young guy, followed him out and confronted him about it or asked him if he stole him. And Bitteker stabbed him in the chest with a knife and allegedly barely missed his heart. And he tried to run away, but two other employees came out and grabbed him. So because of that, Bitteker was convicted of, you know, assault with a deadly weapon. He was sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. Let's talk, now we're going to talk about Norris. So, in November of 1969, Roy Norris was arrested for his first known sexual offenses. He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. In the latter incident, he had attempted to force his way into the car of a lone woman. Three months later, in February 1970, Norris attempted to deceive a lone woman into allowing him to enter her home. When the woman refused, he attempted to break into her house, but the woman phoned the police, and the police were able to arrive in time to arrest him before he could do anything to her. He, you know, he asked her if he could use her phone, and she said no, and so he tried to, like, break in. Less than three months after the offense, Norris was diagnosed by military psychologists with a severe schizoid personality. He was given an administrative discharge from the Navy under, under terms labeled as psychological problems. In May of 1970, Norris, who was, was out on bail for his latest offense, attacked a female student whom he had been stalking on the grounds of the San Diego University campus. Norris repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk as he knelt upon her lower back. Shortly thereafter, Norris was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He was committed to a total of five years imprisonment at the at a Scudero State Hospital where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. Norris was released from the Atascadero State Hospital in 1975 with five years probation, having been declared by doctors in, as an individual who was, quote, of no further danger to others. And that's actually the title of a chapter in a book that I read called, well, I didn't read the whole book, but I read a chapter on this, and the book is called Alone with the Devil, and that's the... Uh, that's the name of that chapter, No Further Danger to Others. And just three months after his release, Norris approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach and offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined, Norris parked his motorcycle and grabbed the woman's scarf, twisting it around her neck before informing her he intended to rape her. Um, he drug her body into nearby bushes. You know, she was obviously afraid for her life and she didn't try to resist him. Other information I'd read about this is that she was in a restaurant with her husband. They'd had a pretty big argument. She decided to walk home and that's when Norris approached her and 
all this happened. So although the rape was reported to police, they were initially unable to find the perpetrator. One month later, the victim observed Norris's motorcycle and noted the license plate number, which she immediately gave to police. Norris was arrested for the rape, and one year later he was tried and convicted for the offense and sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, where him and Bitteker met and they became friends. During this time, allegedly, Bitteker saved Norris a couple times, or, you know, during, I think, some fights. And so Norris would later claim that by prison code, he was bound to Bitteker and basically had to comply with any endeavors that Bitteker wanted to partake in. The two became acquainted in 1977, and then they became pretty good acquaintances a year later. I should say by 1978. Turns out that they both had very similar fantasies in terms of, you know, raping, torturing girls. Their plan was that they should kill a girl, you know, kill and rape a girl from each teenage year, so 13 through 19. Initially, I don't think it was, I don't think they planned on killing them. You know, they definitely wanted to rape girls from that age, but then Bitteker ends up going on and telling him that if he ever raped a woman, he would kill her to make sure that there would be no witnesses. The two eventually make a vow to become reacquainted after they're released. Bitteker was released first, and he ends up getting a job as a machinist, and apparently he was really good at it. He was making a lot of money doing it. Norris was released three months later, and he moved in with his mom, you know, in a trailer park, and allegedly they had incestual relations. So when Norris finally gets out, Bitteker writes to him, and the two meet up in a hotel where, you know, they talk about their previous plans to rape and murder teenage girls with the help of Bitteker's money, they're able to buy a 1977 GMC van. It, it didn't have any side windows. It had a large sliding door. So then what they do is, uh, you know, Bitteker takes it over to Norris's place and they kind of retrofit this thing by adding a bed to the back of it and reinforcing the bed and things like that. They add a cooler in the back that's filled with soda and beer. And what they start doing is they start patrolling the Pacific Coast Highway and pit- picking up female hitchhikers. You know, for a span of about five months, they didn't do anything to any of them because they were just testing out what kind of ruses they could use to lure women into the van. During this time, they were also patrolling for secluded places that they could take these people. One of the places they found was an old, you know, was a fire road by the San Gabriel Mountains. When they found that place, Bitteker broke the lock off of it and replaced it with a lock of his own. So their first victim was a 16-year-old girl named Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. They found her at around 8 p.m. and she had just left church. She was she was walking to her grandma's house from the Presbyterian Church. Norris got out and tried to, you know, he asked her if she wanted to get in the van or needed a ride and she declined. They pulled ahead of her. They drove, you know, quite a ways past her and they, they parked in someone's driveway. Norris got out and he obscured himself by only basically leaving his, you know, legs and whatnot out of the van and when she passed by and he says something to her so that she stops and then he ends up grabbing her and wrestling her into the van. But once they get her into the van, um, they immediately blare the music. And so despite screaming when she was first captured, um, Bitteker says, quote, that she, quote, displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. But later, Norris told Bitteker, you know, they, they take her to that fire road I was telling you about. For a while, I, I guess they, you know, they eat with her, they drink with her, they smoke some weed. And when they get tired of that, they tell her to strip. Norris tells Bitteker to go take, you know, go take a walk. So 
Bittaker goes and takes an hour-long walk. During that time, Norris um, rapes her. And so Lucinda asked if they planned to kill her, and he said no. But she also, I think she knew they, they probably did, and she just said that if they did plan on killing her, like all she wanted was a little while to pray before they did. And so when Bittaker gets back, he rapes her. You know, after he rapes her, they decide to kill her. And later in court, each one of them will say the other one is the one who suggested killing her. So we don't really know who decided to kill her, but I'm guessing it was probably Bittaker based on what he had said previously, that if he ever raped somebody, he'd kill him to make sure there were, you know, that there were no witnesses. So initially, though, Norris is the one who tried to strangle her. And when he did, you know, he tried to for about 45 seconds. Yeah, he, he couldn't do it. So allegedly he ran to the front of the van and threw up. And so Bittaker did it and they did it by getting a section of wired coat hanger and they put it around her throat and they twisted it with vice grip pliers until she died. But there's also another description where it says how she spasmed really hard for like 15 seconds and then it stopped. Yeah, so what they did is they wrapped her in a plastic shower curtain and threw her over the edge of a canyon. Bittaker, you know, told Norris the animals would eat her up so there wouldn't be any evidence left. So that, that was their first victim. Their second victim was Andrea Joy Hall, who was 18 years old. She was abducted July 8th, 1979. So they picked her up. And she was hitchhiking on the Pacific Coast Highway. Initially, they thought they had missed their chance because somebody else picked her up, but they tailed that person. And when she got out, they offered her a ride, which she accepted. So this time, though, Norris hid in the back of the van so she, th you know, so that she thought Bittaker was by himself. Bittaker offered her a cold drink from the cooler that they had in the back of the van. And when she went back there to get it, Norris attacked her and gagged her and bound her. So they drove to the same fire road. They drove deeper down it than they had taken Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. During this time, you know, they, they raped her. Bittaker allegedly raped her twice and Norris raped her once. So while Bittaker was raping her for the second time, Norris thought he saw headlights. So Bittaker dragged her into the bushes while Norris drove around trying to confirm his suspicion. And upon Norris's return, they drove deeper into the San Gabriel Mountains where Bittaker made Hall blow him and forced her to pose for him for several pictures. So they drove to a third location. Bittaker took Hall up another hill while Norris drove to a local store to buy alcohol. He took her up the hill to take even more pictures. So by the time when Norris got back, um, Bittaker was alone with two more pictures, which Norris later described as containing Hall's face, expressing sheer, you know, quote, sheer terror as she pleaded for her life. Bittaker told Hall he was going to kill her and that she should offer as many reasons as possible to live. He went on to say later that I guess she wasn't very convincing. Bittaker shoved an ice pick into one of her ears and into her brain. He flipped her over and he did it again. So he shoved that ice pick into her other ear, into her brain. And despite, you know, you think that would have killed her outright, but it didn't at all. Then he strangled her to death. The second time he stabbed that ice pick into her brain, he stomped on the handle until it broke. After that, then he strangled her to death. He threw her body over a cliff. I don't know if all of you know what an ice pick is, but if you don't, go look it up. And I also recommend going, you know, Look at a diagram of the inner ear. Just imagine somebody stabbing that into your brain. You know, stabbing an ice pick through your ear into your brain. And then it's even more, you know, terrible because that didn't kill her. He, he still had to strangle her to death. Yeah, so now victims three and four who were Jackie Doris Gilliam, who was 15, and Jacqueline Leah Lamp, who was 13. September 3rd, 1979. Bittaker and Norris saw Gilliam and Lamp resting at a bus stop. 
They'd been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. Bittaker offered them a ride, which they accepted. Then Norris offered them weed, which they also accepted. Eventually, the girls called them. You know, they called them out after noticing they were no longer driving along the Pacific Coast Highway. Um, Bittaker and Norris had given them excuses that fooled neither girl. Lamp tried opening the sliding door and was knocked out by Norris, who hit her in the head with a lead-filled bag. And then Norris overpowered Gilliam and tied her up. While he was tying and gagging Gilliam, Lamp regained consciousness and tried to escape, this time caught by Norris and pulled back into the van. The struggle took place in front of witnesses, and from an article I read, it happened in front of a group of tennis players. Bittaker stopped the van, punched Gilliam in the face, and finished helping Norris tie them. And so I just want you to think of that too, as this happened, and from what I read, this didn't happen in, in front of a group of, you know, children tennis players. This happened in front of adults, and nobody did anything. So, okay, so they take Lamp and Gilliam to the, you know, to the San Gabriel Mountains, to that fire road. There they were raped and tortured for almost two days. Bittaker and Norris slept next to their victims, and they would take turns standing watch. But one of the days, Bittaker took Lamp up a hill and had her pose for nudes. And after returning to the van, um, he had Norris take pictures of him and Gilliam as well, nude, nude and clothed. But during one of the three times, Norris raped Gilliam. He recorded it and told her to pretend like she was his cousin. This recording was never found, and it wasn't stated exactly when, but during Gilliam's capture, Bittaker tortured her by stabbing her breasts with an ice pick and tearing off part of her nipple with vice grips. If you don't know what vice grips are, I recommend taking a look at them. Um, my grandpa had quite a few of them because he was a he was a pipe fitter, and I can tell you that. I couldn't imagine someone putting something like that on your nipples and you know, ripping part of it off or pinching you with them. Women listening to this, do you know how, like, sensitive a woman's nipples are? Just imagine them getting smashed with vice grips is just terrible. So after almost two days, they killed Gilliam and Lamp. Norris later said he asked Bittaker if they could kill Gilliam quickly since she had been cooperative. Bittaker replied, quote, no, they only die once anyway. Gilliam was stabbed in each ear with an ice pick, then strangled to death. She got an ice pick stabbed into her brain through each ear. Bittaker led Lamp out of the van, and then he said, you wanted to stay a virgin, now you can die a virgin. Which, remember, this is just a 13-year-old girl. After he said that, Norris hit her in the head with a sledgehammer. Bittaker then strangled her until he thought she died, but she, but she eventually opened her eyes. Norris started beating her in the head with the sledgehammer while Bittaker resumed strangling her. And their bodies were thrown over an embankment into the chaparral. So their next victim is Shirley Lynette Ledford. They found and killed her October 31st, 1979. She was only 16 years old, and she was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party. Um, Bittaker and Norris offered her a ride, which she accepted. From what I read, she likely accepted it because she recognized Bittaker, since he was someone who often ate at the restaurant that she worked part-time at. So Norris offered her weed, which she declined, and then Norris drew a knife on her and gagged her and tied her. So Bittaker and Norris, they, they switched spots, and they drove the van around randomly for over an hour. So they're driving it around, you know, L.A. Bittaker removed her leg bindings and the gag, and then he slapped and mocked her and he shouted quote you know say something he kept shouting that she started screaming and he told her to scream louder and she complied and while so doing he hit her more and asked her quote what's the matter don't you like to scream she started crying and saying no quote no don't touch me and you're probably wondering you know how do we know this as far as these quotes go and that's because you know they they end up uh, recording this he hits her with a hammer 
He punches her in the breasts and he tortures her with pliers um, while and after raping and sodomizing her. So, you know, Norris and Bittaker, they switch spots. And now Norris is telling her, quote, go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream. And she says, quote, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. And she starts screaming until Norris tells her to stop. And so at this point, Norris picks up the sledgehammer to which Shirley yells, quote, oh, no. And Norris hits her left elbow. Shirley tells him that you broke, he tells her you just broke my elbow. And she says, quote, don't hit me again. And so then Norris goes on to hit her in that same elbow 25 or 27 consecutive times and asks her, you know, obviously you can imagine how much she's screaming at this point. He he asks her, quote, what are you sniveling about? After about two hours, Norris strangles Ledford with, uh, you know, a section of wire hanger. You know, they put it around her neck and they tighten it with vice grips. Quote, Ledford did not react much to the act of strangulation, although she died with her eyes open. So Bittaker decided that they should dump her body on a random lawn to see how the press would react. They left Shirley's body on a bed of ivy, and she was found in the morning by a jogger. Whenever the court ends up hearing this audio tape, she was clearly begging for them to kill her. Or maybe that's why she didn't react much during the act of strangulation. I think at that point she was just ready to die. You know, she and um, they they dump her body on a bed of ivy. And she was found in the morning by a jogger. So this is a quote about her autopsy. So it says an autopsy, you know, quote, an autopsy revealed that in addition to having been sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, breasts, and left elbow, with her olecranon sustaining multiple fractures. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by Bittaker having inserted pliers inside her body. In addition, her left hand bore a puncture wound, and a finger on her right hand had been slashed. They tore her vagina and her anus with uh, pliers and whatever else they were stuffing into her. And so, okay, so in November of 1979, Norris met up with an old ex-con friend named Joseph Jackson and told him about what they'd done. He also confessed they attacked three other women who all either escaped and in one case was actually raped and released. Jackson talked to his attorney who advised him to contact the police. Detective Paul Bynum was assigned the case to confirm whether or not Jackson's claims about Norris's confessions were true. They did match the descriptions of many missing persons reports. Um, one of the events Jackson told him about matched a rape, you know, rape victim named Robin Robeck, where two white men in their mid-30s had maced, raped her, and then released her. So Detective Bynum sent another detective to Oregon to visit Robeck. Upon being shown several mug shots, she immediately positively identified photos of the rapist, and the two people she identified were Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. Norris was put under surveillance. And within days, he was caught dealing weed, which was a parole violation. He was arrested November 20th, 1979, and Bittaker was arrested the same day for the rape of Robin Robeck. And so Robeck positively identified the rapists in a series of mug shots, you know, when that detective went to Oregon. But for some reason, she wasn't able to positive, positively identify them in a lineup. But despite that, both men were held for parole violations. So investigators searched Bittaker's motel and found several Polaroids of Andrea Joy Hall and Jackie Gilliam, their third and fourth known victims. Wait, I apologize for that. So Andrea Joy Hall would have been their second and Jackie Gilliam was one of their third or fourth victims. And so they found in Bittaker's van a you know, a bag of lead weights, two necklaces belonging to Hall and Gilliam, Vaseline, a book detailing how to find police radio frequencies, a sledgehammer, and a tape of a woman screaming and pleading. So Shirley Lynette, Ledford's mom, confirmed that the voice on that tape was that of her only daughter, and the voices of the two men were Bittaker's and Norris's. So Norris attended a preliminary hearing November 30th, 1979. He was already showing, quote, signs of distress. 
He waived his Miranda rights before both Detective Bynum and Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay, even before they started questioning him. So they first start questioning him about the rape of Robin Robeck, then they question him about the statements given by Jackson, then they found things, they talked to him about the things they found in Bittaker's apartment. So at first he denied any allegations of rape or murder or abductions, but... You know, kind of like what I said, once they started revealing the evidence they'd collected, he began confessing. So he tried convincing them Bittaker was more culpable in the murders, then started describing what they'd do in a, quote, casual, unconcerned manner, detailing how they'd lure women into the van, force them if they didn't voluntarily enter, and he talked about the murders. So he confessed to beating Leah Lamp over the head with a sledgehammer and beating Shirley Lynette Ledford's elbow with it. He also admitted the acts of torture and humiliation were committed, quote, for fun. So Norris said Bittaker's level of violence increased after each victim and that Ledford had begged to be killed to end her pain. Norris provided more corroborating evidence such as the fact that their first victim, Lucinda Schaefer, had been abducted just after leaving church and that during the struggle, you know, when Norris was trying to get her into the van that she lost a shoe. So those are basically things that they could have only known. So 500 photos of young women were also found in Bittaker's apartment, and 60 of the girls in them were identified as safe. 19 were reported missing and may have been murdered, though there wasn't evidence supporting the latter. So they also found a picture of an unidentified girl taken in circumstances very similar to those of several of the victims. Norris agrees to you know, that if they don't seek the death penalty against him, he'll help them out. Norris took investigators to the San Gabriel Mountains to, you know, to go recover the bodies. Yeah, during that time, they, they never found the bodies of Lucinda Lynn Schaefer or Andrea Hall, but they did find Jacqueline Leah Lamp and Jackie Doris Gilman's bodies. Those bodies were scattered over large area at the bottom of a canyon. An ice pick was still stuck in Jackie Gilliam's skull. Jacqueline Leah Lamp's skull had multiple indentations, supporting Norris's confession that he'd hit her multiple times in the head with a sledgehammer. So in February of 1980, both men were charged on five accounts of first-degree murder. Within a month of being charged, Norris agreed to a plea bargain where he'd testify against Bittaker as long as prosecution didn't give him a death sentence. The most substantial piece of evidence against them was a 17-minute recording of Shirley Lynette Ledford's rape and torture. The audio tape was found in Bittaker's van, and Norris testified that Bittaker would often listen to it while driving and considered it to be, quote, real funny. So before playing that segment in the courtroom, Stephen Kay says, quote, For those of you who do not know what hell is like, you will find out. So more than 100 people were in the courtroom before the tape was over. Most of the courtroom was crying, and some left the courtroom to vomit. It didn't bother Bittaker at all. He smiled while hearing the recording. And so this morning, I, I found some footage of that hearing, and somewhere around like the 26-minute mark, you can start hearing the screams and stuff from Ledford. And you start, you know, people start exiting and one lady rushes off. And I don't know if the sound, I don't know if it's the sound of her vomiting or the sound of almost like a spastic cry that starts. But yeah, she either threw up or immediately, you know, she started crying when she got off camera. Man, there were a lot of other people that exited the courtroom. And so here's here's a big excerpt from Wikipedia, quote, In one of two instances throughout the trial when prosecutor Stephen Kay was reduced to tears, he walked out of the courtroom during recess following the hearing of the recording of Shirley Ledford's rape, abuse, and torture. Weep. Weeping openly, Kay stated to the reporters gathered outside the courtroom, quote, Everybody who has heard that tape has it had their effect Sorry, everybody who has heard that tape has had it affect their lives. I just picture those girls, how alone they were when they died. 
So, sorry. And a lot of people, even very strong people, one of their biggest fears in life is dying alone. And so, yeah, when he says, uh, you know, he pictures those girls and how alone they were when they died. You know, I, I agree with that. It's almost worse. They weren't just alone. They were around men they didn't, they didn't do anything to. They'd been raped. They'd been tortured. And they were killed. So when... Sorry, resuming that quote, so, or, you know, that excerpt. Um, when questioned by reporters as to whether the audio tape should have been introduced into evidence, given the obvious psychological and emotional trauma caused to many of the courtroom through the contents being broadcast, Kay simply stated, quote, you're darn right, it, the audio tape should have been. The jury needs to know what these guys did. Bittaker would claim Shirley's recorded screams were only evidence of a threesome, and that toward the very end, Shirley had been screaming for them to kill her. And so here's here's a quote from Norris that they obtained in 1997. So this was long after they'd been prosecuted and he had been incarcerated. Regarding that tape, uh, here's an excerpt and it says, it says, quote, We've all heard women scream in horror films. Still, we know that no one is really screaming. Why? Simply because an actress can't produce some of the sounds that convince us that something vile and heinous is happening. If you ever heard that tape, there's just no possible way that you'd not begin crying and trembling. I doubt you could listen to more than a full 60 seconds of it. And so, yeah, that was Roy Norris describing his recollections of the audio tape. So there are some other things that I want to go over, some things that I left out above intentionally. So despite how depraved Bittaker and Norris were, Bittaker was actually somebody who had bought lots of wine and fast food and, you know, he distributed it to the homeless. He was also known to donate money to the Salvation Army. Another thing I left out, but when Norris was 16, he had visited a relative, and I'm guessing it was a cousin, who was in her early 20s, and he made sexually suggestive comments toward her. And, you know, she ordered him to leave and told his dad about it. Norris's dad threatened him with a beating. And so Norris, you know, he stole their car and took it to the Rocky Mountains, and he attempted to kill himself by injecting air into an artery. And I bring that up because, man, could you imagine what would have... Uh, how different things might have been if he had succeeded. You know, that's one case where you wish that, you know, he had he had killed himself like one time. We wish he hadn't fucked up, he did. And so, yeah, the other point I added, which I already talked about, but I think it's worth bringing up, is that um, when Norris attempted to strangle Schaefer, he strangled her for about 45 seconds, and then based on the look in her eyes, he just couldn't do it, and he ran to the front of the van and threw up. So it's interesting. I mean, I think interesting is the wrong word, but he, he knew it was wrong. And that's what, you know, I would say both these guys were actually sociopaths because they knew that what they were doing was wrong. Another point I wanted to bring up is that both of them had substantial previous histories of crime and sexual violence. Actually, I apologize. So Norris did, and regarding sexual violence, um, Bittaker, there were no known previous, you know, there was no history of sexual violence, but Norris had an extensive one. You know, we talked about how he, he beat that lady in the back of the head with a rock and then knelt on her back and smashed her head into the concrete. He raped another lady, you know, who was walking home. Think about that. That guy had a massive previous history of this, and he would get released. And they even said that he was no further danger to others. In a lot of ways, why I'm bringing some of this stuff up is that in a lot of ways, I think that the justice system failed these girls. So here's something from, here's another point, and it's from forensic psychologist Dr. Robert Markman. He is somebody who had examined Bittaker before the trial and rejected the earlier findings of borderline psychosis. He branded Bittaker a, quote, classic sociopath. And as Markman explained that term later in his memoir, Alone with the Devil, which... You know, I bought that book and I read the chap this chapter. And so most of the information I got was from Wikipedia, Murderpedia, 
and Alone with the Devil. In it, he says the diagnosis simply meant that Bittaker was, quote, was incapable of learning to play by the rules. He would never learn by experience, and he would just keep banging his head against the barriers of acceptable behavior, end quote. So in short, he was a hopeless case, and he was beyond any known treatment or rehabilitation. And so Dr. Markman also warned that Bittaker was bound to escalate his criminal behavior in that you know, he'd be moving on to more serious crimes, that he was, quote, a highly dangerous man with no internal controls over his impulses, a man who could kill without hesitation or remorse. Later, Bittaker reinforced this conclusion by telling a cellmate that someday he planned to be, quote, bigger than Manson. And so, you know, prison psychiatrists, they agreed with Markman. A 1977 jailhouse evaluation found Bittaker, quote, more than likely to commit new crimes upon his release. And so a year later, in July of 1978, another psychiatrist dubbed Bittaker, quote, a sophisticated psychopath, end quote, whose prospects for successful parole were, quote, guarded at best. Again, the warnings were ignored and Bittaker was released in November 1978. So despite the fact that he had been evaluated by several psychiatrists and a psychologist, you know, and one of them had concluded, hey, he's not a psychopath, this guy's a sociopath. And the primary difference between that is a psychopath has no control over what they do in a lot of ways. I mean, you could think of it like a, they have like a hardware defect, whereas sociopathy is a character flaw. You know, they do know right from wrong. And they just choose to disregard that, you know, at the expense of others. And so another thing that I left out is they found seven bottles of acidic materials in Bittaker's motel. And he planned on using them on the next victim. So that's something that really disturbed me about this case, too, is that it was only escalating. You know, if these guys hadn't been caught, who knows what else they would have done? You know, what did they have started? You know, what did they got bored sticking ice picks in girls' ears? They started of stuffing them up their noses or through their eyes, through their, you know, butt. Like, you just get to thinking about what else were they going to do? He was already getting bored, so he'd already graduated to buying some bottles of acid to use on the next girls. So the next point is, uh, so Stephen K. said that Bittaker and Norris' case is the worst he ever worked on and that Bittaker deserves death more than any other person on California's death row. He said that for over two years he had recurring nightmares where he'd be running to Bittaker's van to save the girls but would always arrive too late. The next point is that, so Detective Paul Bynum, who was, you know, like the primary detective assigned to this case, committed suicide December of 1987. He left a 10-page suicide note and said one of the main reasons he was committing suicide is because their murders haunted him and he was afraid they might eventually be released from prison. And he was only 39 years old, and he left behind a wife and children. Another point is that the recording of Ledford's rape and torture is used by the FBI Academy to desensitize FBI agents to the reality of murder and torture. The other point is Bittaker is always smiling. On almost every picture I see of this guy, he's smiling. He always has this, like, shit-eating grin on his face. You know, and now he's, he's an old man, and so he just looks like this happy old man, but he's always smiling. And you can tell, like, he enjoyed getting away with this. I think he finds it funny. You know, he knows he's gaming him. So something else about Bittaker, another point is that while he's been incarcerated, he's filed over 40 frivolous lawsuits, and one cost $5,000 in taxpayer money to get dropped. But he was finally labeled a vexatious litigant, and during the suits, some of these suits were as frivolous as him being served broken cookies or smashed sandwiches at lunch. He considered that to be, quote, cruel and unusual punishment. The other thing about him is that he signs a lot of his letters, so he has this correspondence with probably murder groupies and stuff, and he'll frequently sign his letters as Pliers Bittaker, so his nickname is Pliers, and that's how sometimes I guess he signs his letters, you know, so you can tell he finds what he did pretty funny. I wanted to 
in this episode with um, some questions and answers in an interview that Bitteker did with somebody in 2012. Initially, I was going to read all the questions and all the answers, but it's not worth it. If you're interested, you can look it up and you can read all the questions and answers. I'm just going to start reading the ones that I picked. So the guy asked him or says, he says, your case was used during research for the Silence of the Lambs. Have you ever seen that movie? And I should have added to the list of previous points that there was an actor for the Silence of the Lambs who was against the death penalty. They took him down to the FBI Academy and they had him listen to, you know, that audio tape of Ledford's rape, torture, and murder. And when he was done listening to it, he completely supported the death penalty. Okay, so sorry. Um, so your case was used during research for the Silence of the Lambs. Have you ever seen the movie? And Bitteker says, I've seen bits of it, but those types of movies don't appeal to me. I have no preoccupation with murder mysteries or sexual assault mysteries. I can't relate to the movie. It's too wacky. The guy asked him, what was your motivation for the crimes? And Bitteker says, I'm going to tell you the truth. My psychosexual development stopped when I first got incarcerated at 16. I spent 40 of my 65 years in jail. It destroyed my social and sexual development. I never had a normal upbringing. My family life was like I was a boarder. I don't hate women. I can't understand raping an 80-year-old woman. You're raping someone who's unattractive. Something is screwy with that. But I can understand the rape of an attractive girl who turns you on. I love girls, young and attractive. My fantasy is a girl screaming, but because of pleasure. My whole life I had no woman who loved me. And that's what I wanted so bad. That's why I took the girls into the mountains. So then they ask him, uh, how do you feel about women? And he says, I like women. I don't think they're beneath us. I got wrapped up in a screwball fantasy. It wasn't exciting. Well, it was exciting in a certain sense. Age is not relevant as long as they're young and attractive. I got a problem with women anywhere near my adopted mother's age. My adopted parents were kind of old when they adopted me in their 40s. Having sex with a woman of that age reminds me of my mother, a sex object. They ask him about, you know, Gilliam and Lamp. So he says, what happened during the Lamp-Gilliam murder? And he says, Roy was the one who got excited about having sex. I kind of stumbled into it. Technically, it was rape. They were snatched off the street and tied up. But we treated them well. We partied with them, gave them food, smoked our marijuana, and drank. Given the circumstances, it was the most friendly rape situation. I'm the local friendly rapist. And then he asks him, are you a serial killer? And he says, they say I am, so I am. I'm a special serial killer. And he asks, what's a special serial killer? And then it just says, you know, grins. So he just smiles at that. But then he asks him, do you think about your execution? And he says, why would I want to think about that? And then it says he leans in and speaks softly so the guards can't hear him. And so he says, I have it all figured out anyway to commit suicide. Razor blades are sort of messy. I can just black myself out. You just put some pressure on your carotid artery. And if I did that with a wrap of some kind, maybe a belt or cloth, wrap it around my neck, tighten it with a pencil or something, when your brain is not getting any blood, you're in trouble. I'll just fall out and never wake up. And then he asks him, what, under what circumstances would you kill yourself? And he says, obviously, if I had some kind of medical problem, if I was in a lot of pain, and to avoid a public execution. As bizarre as I am, I can't imagine coming in here to watch somebody get killed. And then he says, when do you plan on killing yourself? And he says, don't have any immediately plans of going anywhere. I might change my mind next week. He's also asked, do you, get it? do you get many visitors? And he says, no. There's a couple, a husband and wife named Smith, a Christian couple from Fresno. He's a licensed minister. They initially were involved in the juvenile offender program. 
Around the late 1970s, they shifted their attention to the condemned and started visiting death row prisoners. They visit me infrequently. We asked him, what do you talk about with them? And he says, whatever we want to talk about. I'm not religious. They don't push religion on me. And it says his, his eyes well up with tears. They're just really good people. See, I'm not an animal. We all got our problems. Look at you. You have big feet. Observant, aren't I? How much money did you make selling your wares? So what he's referring to is apparently online for a while you'd be able to buy Bitaker's fingernail clippings. So apparently there are people referred to as murder groupies. They love buying things from serial killers. I can't wrap my head around that. He asks him, how much money did you make selling your wares? He says, not very much. Most expensive cards were, I don't really know what that means, but that's what he said. That's the quote. It says, retailer took 40%, started roughly in 1983 and ended in 98. I was under investigation. Supposedly, the authorities got word that a local principal is smuggling in kitty porn to me. That's what led to them finding out about my business. They charged me with two things, running a business and circumventing trust procedures, which is kind of like laundering money. At most, I made zero. So the final question he asks him, be honest with me, do you have any remorse for killing those girls? Yes, yes, yes. How many times do I have to tell you? Nobody's going to believe me. I'm not happy I got caught. That's how he feels about that. His only regret is that he got caught. And other things that I have read about him, he, talk, he always talks about how much this has affected his life. Like so much of my life has been wasted on death row. Other things I want to talk about. How much do we think that the justice system failed those girls when these guys had 15 year sentences, you know, or Bideker did, and he was released after two or three, you know, that happened multiple times. Why was Norris ever released after raping a woman after beating one in the head with a rock and smashing her head into the concrete um, after attempting to rape several people why was he ever released and it just makes you wonder that if they had to serve their full sentences or at least a lot longer maybe they never would have met each other and maybe they never would have done this you know things could have been different maybe but you know we'll never know and i also find it you know disappointing that people like this aren't executed sooner you know in some ways i think that's that's an example of the the system failing their family and their and other people this guy's lived a pretty happy life. In the interview I'm reading, you know, Bitteker has a color TV. He reads a lot. Speaking of which, he found things in California law books that his, you know, his lawyers didn't find. So like I said, the guy was, he's smart. He's very smart. He likes to correspond with his fans. And like I've, I said before, he signs a lot of his letters, apparently as pliers, either pliers or pliers Bitteker. Sometimes I wonder, is the death penalty too light for guys like him? You know, part of me thinks that the victim's families should be the ones to decide what the punishment is. I don't know if this will get the podcast removed, but part of me thinks they should even be able to decide whether or not they want these people tortured for the remainders of their lives. Because in a lot of ways, that's exactly what the families are going through and a lot of the jurors, you know, and it didn't stop with just their victims. Or I should say there were additional victims than the ones they explicitly killed. You know, there was the detective who left behind a wife and kids because the thought of these guys maybe being released was like too much for them. Yeah, so with people like this, is it is even the death penalty, is that not severe enough? Because you kill somebody, it's just over. But the suffering that goes on from the families never ends. It doesn't end until they die. A very big part of me feels that that's exactly how the perpetrators, that's what they should have to live in. Just constant agony and pain for the rest of their lives, kind of like the victim's family. What really just tears me up about this, for one, is yeah, they, those girls basically die alone. 